I wish I didn't have to stay with all these crazy characters. But Vector wouldn't pay for Cosmos's repairs, and I couldn't stand the Chief looking so sad. Of course, all these people mock me. Damn it, I'm a doctor, not a romance writer. I don't understand what the problem with this guy is. If the woman had a cat, then it would all make sense, but nobody wants to eat the pet robot she really owns. Klingon relationships are not applicable to the ways of mere humans. But if a Klingon male had been in the proximity of one he deemed desirable for years without acting, respect would be at the least qualities lost to him. You should just relax, and time has moved very carefully. Ladies, especially princesses, respond well if you fly casual. And this one's, this one's a replicant. Those are bad news. I'm sorry, Alan, but while I support you doing everything you can with the Shion woman, you mope all the time. And you take machines apart to distract yourself. And I don't like to sing Daisy anymore. I don't know why, but I feel like he needs to get his ass to Mars. See? With housemates like these, I can't even get Shion to visit, let alone go on a date. I should find Junior and ask him for romantic advice. Mary and Shelley wouldn't call him Little Master without a reason, would they? There are RPGs long forgotten, beyond that which is known to the modern gamer. It is a catalog vast as space and timeless as myth and legends. It is the middle ground where panelists from RP Gamer discuss computer and console RPGs from the way back when, right up through yesteryear. This is a dimension of adventure beyond your imagination. This is the RPG Backtrack. Here are the hosts of RPG Backtrack, Philip Willis and Mike Meeky. Welcome to RPG Backtrack at number 41, Xenophobic Cutscenes. Today, we're talking about the trio of Xenosega games on the PlayStation 2. And to help me do that, I've got a quartilogy. Is that the word for it, Mr. Meeky? Uh, if you want to do what 20th Century Fox did and just invent words, then I think quadrilogy. Oh, right, quadrilogy, that's right. Got a quadrillion of people to help me out. Or we really have a trilogy of guests because Mr. Miki, of course, is my esteemed co-host. Mr. Miki, how are you doing today? Well, I'm just going to paraphrase George Carlin here and say that every time somebody says, have a good one, I think to myself, hey, I already have a good one. Now I'm looking for a longer one. And that seems to hold him for about a half an hour. <laughs> oh, you sweet mercy. I don't think he turned it down very much. Um, <laughs> Mr. Baker, how are you doing? I'm doing okay. Just wish I didn't have to shout so much in the microphone this time. <laughs> Welcome back to Backtrack. I hope things are going well for you. Back to back. Yeah. Well, he's about as far in Japan as it is possible to be from the earthquake zone. Pr- pretty much. What about you, Mr. Nathan? You far away from any earthquake zones tonight? California, so only theoretically. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Nathan Slothen. Slothen. How do you get Slothen? But there's a CH in there. You just skipped over it. <laughs> and you ignore them. It works beautifully. There's no such thing as a silent CH. Nathan, <laughs> Nathan, you're really lucky he can even pronounce Nathan. <laughs> <laughs> and that that deep baritone voice that we hear that is the uh, special voice actor we have from um, King of the Hill, Mr. Cunningham. 
I have a baritone voice? <laughs> You're never going to let you live that down, by the way. I must have played that for all my co-workers. Did you? Show. Yeah, I sure did. <laughs> Everybody thought that. And I said, hey, you know, we actually got the guy who does the voice acting on King of the Hill to come re-record in our show. And they actually believed it. That was the funny part. Man, I am in the wrong field. I need to just go into voice acting, apparently. Yeah, go talk I can to only do like, I'm sure he'd I can only do that. Apparently, the only voices I can do are, you know, Hank Hill. I can do Dana Carvey as George Bush Sr. And I can do a semi-decent impression of Phil Willis. But other than that, that's about it. Mm-mm-mm. Semi. Only a semi-good version of me. It's enough to trick the people in RPG cast. <laughs> well, Even sure with you on it. the episode. <laughs> I know. There, that's pretty sad, actually. Hmm. So, yeah. <laughs> so, um, so we have a we have a lot of lot of things to talk about tonight. So let's get to it. We'll be right back after these words from our sponsors. No, no sponsors, just music. We'll be right back. This episode of the RPG Backtrack is brought to you by Jolt Cola. Actually, this episode of the RPG Backtrack is brought to you by Sprite, because Jolt Cola is not sold in my region, and I refuse to seek it out. (laughs) Jolt Cola really exists? Yeah. I think it's been outmoded for a long time, but yeah, it's out there somewhere. What about Nuka Cola? Never heard of that. No Fallout 3 fans. Buddy, <laughs> sorry, man. You're. Mm-mm-mm. Are we supposed to be quiet now? Sorry. No, no. I think we kind of ruined the whole quiet, quiet <laughs> shtick. So wait, wait, you can do Ben Stein. I'll keep that in mind. You're. Um. Yeah. Mm. I don't know. So our first game up on here is. Well, Mr. Minky, maybe you should say the title. Otherwise, I will slaughter this to death, and the Germans will Zeno come over Saga, and kill me. Episode one, Der Wille zur Macht. Yeah, what you said. This <laughs> this was at least. They bad. all have a Nietzschean subtitle, so just get used to it, Phil. No, that's why I have you for Mr. Minky. I, I, <laughs> this show wouldn't exist without you. Uh, this was uh, made by Namco, I believe, and uh, published by Monolith Soft, or vice versa. Vice versa. Vice versa. There you go. This is a single-player RPG experience for your PlayStation 2 home console. It was released on February 26, 2003, and it is rated T for. Is it terrific or terrible? Uh, tepid. Tepid, all right. <laughs> Woo, doggy. Actually, it should be rated M for movie, because isn't it like one long interactive movie? <laughs> That's, That's pretty accurate. Exaggerated bits, but yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Who, wants to, who wants to set the stage by telling me what is the overall story and plot of Xenosaga Alright, I think I would like to start off by just first off mentioning a little bit about the series as a whole and then since 
you know, I'm sure Mike has played all these within the past few months as some of the rest of us maybe hadn't played them in a year or so. Uh, and I couldn't replay them recently because mine were just, I, for some reason, missing. <laughs> uh, yes, I will um, endeavor to make them not missing in the near future. That's all right. Um, I guess I should start off by saying that uh, the Xeno Saga series started off as a grand kind of a unofficial spinoff of Xenogears. It features some of the same developers, uh, some of the same scenario writers, but from where they had moved from Square Enix to Monolith Soft as an independent studio, they no longer had the actual ties or rights to the Xeno, uh, the Xeno Gears world. But that didn't stop them from using a bunch of similar themes, similar looking characters, and for anybody that was familiar with Xeno Gears, the Perfect Works books that or the Perfect Works book that came out stated that Xeno Gears was going to be episode five. Even in the credits, it said episode five of a six-part series, none of which we actually saw. But when the developers came back in Monolith Soft as the new company, they branded the first one Xeno Gears episode one or Xeno Saga episode one. And it's kind of the spiritual successor, even though it has no official direct ties to the Perfect Works or Xenogears itself. So the series as a whole is from, you know, the same core team, and especially starting with Episode 1, which I'll let you all get into a little more detail about here shortly. But Episode 1 is really kind of the the core game that kind of started things off and... It uh, it had a few throwbacks here and there, but I just kind of wanted to say the series as a whole did kind of branch from that, and these three parts are actually the only parts we're really going to see. So now, um, I'm curious about something. Just uh, straighten me out if necessary. Xenosaga hmm. 1 and 2 were originally supposed to be one game, correct? I don't know for certain. It sure seems like it if you look at the development of that. Um, Nathan, did you have any specifics about that or maybe the series as a whole, how its origins come from uh, Xenogears? Well, Xenogear, well, Xenosaga's, all three Xenosaga games roughly fill into what was kind of the original idea for Xenogears Episode 2. So it's kind of based after something. This isn't the beginning of even the, it's even Xenosaga Episode 1 isn't the beginning of the whole story. Also, it basically, at the same time, it's not really Xenogears Episode 2. It kind of has some similarities, like the Perfect Works Guide talks about basically them having the same beginning with the aftermath of a planet just vanishing into nowhere. But beyond that, they differ in all kinds of ways, and the end of Xenosaga doesn't even move into Xenogears at all. And of course, there's the whole issue that they don't have, didn't have the legal rights to make a Xenogears game. So it's just a large collection of references to Xenogears that don't really go anywhere. It's like they had a lot of source material to use, and some of it I guess they could spin off legally, and some of it I'm sure they could have gotten in some legal issues with Square Enix had they really wanted to push it. Yeah, there's all the quotes from the developers about how they're working close to the Square to not step on the Xenogears intellectual property. Right, because they had moved to it while the team – may have been similar or you know had the same core group in it 
you know, they had moved to an independent studio and were now being published by Namco Bandai instead of Square Enix or Square, whoever actually did, uh, I guess Square itself did Xenogears. So <clears throat> that's kind of the start off of the series itself. But uh, episode one was really just kind of the branching or the start off point of the series. And I'll be glad to let you all have some more detail here. I don't want to hog all the time, but uh, for episode one itself, just um, it was kind of the beginning, the introduction to this three-part series, which really was, you know, a, a continuous series itself. You know, it featured some of the same characters, the uh, main characters being uh, Shion, Izuki, uh, who shares the last name with one of the characters from Xenogears as well, and uh, Cosmos, one of the most famous female robots in uh, RPG history, at least. <clears throat> but uh, I'll let Mike or Michael or Nathan kind of jump in and share a little bit more about the series, as, or episode one specifically. Okay, I guess that means it's my turn until somebody says, shut up. Um, yes, Shion Uzuki is pretty much the star of this, although... Junior and Momo get some time to themselves in this installment, and you also learn some things about the other characters, Ziggy. Um, well, you never Ziggy, really about chaos. chaos. Very, yeah, yeah chaos is cool but forgotten by the story most of the time. He's kind of a well, he doesn't say much. Um. And he kind of stands there and looks mysterious. Yeah, he's the kind of mysterious, shadowy figure who seems to know more than he can let on or than is willing to let on. Well, come the end of episode three, we do learn some things about him, and oh boy, do they (laughs) open up a can of worms. Mm -hmm. Let's not Uh, jump too far ahead just yet. Right, right. Uh, Now, um, episode one... Is renowned for its cutscenes, and yes, it has a lot of them, and they're pretty long. I'm amazed that this is only one disc because some of these cutscenes are over half an hour. Yep. I and... think this was one of the first RPGs I ever played that did let you pause during cutscenes. I know there may have been others before that, but I think this was the first one I remember clearly being able to pause during the middle of cutscenes. And it's a really good thing that you were able to, because like you said, <laughs> 30 minutes for a cutscene is pretty insane. Yeah, pause during cutscenes, be able to skip cutscenes, which is nice for if you die after a long cutscene and need to replay it. The only thing it was missing is being able to save during the middle of a cutscene, which yep. it, it really could have used at times. Yeah, frankly, I found that the save points were kind of far, for few and far between in this. Sometimes, yeah. Let's go yeah. ahead and say... say um, I guess my my knowledge is more broad than deep on this game because it has been a while since I've played it. But I clearly remember a few things really, really specifically. And uh, I guess the whole dramatic aspect of the game is really what sold me on this. And it wasn't so much that the game itself or the, you know, I guess the story or the gameplay or anything in here. At the time I was playing this, I really enjoyed you know, the cutscenes. That's that's exactly what I was playing the game for and what I wanted to do with it is I wanted to sit 
and just watch these cutscenes because the story was so engaging. There was um, even if they didn't really go anywhere during the other parts. Um, I just love the inane babble that you'd get in the middle of everything, and just the the plot twists and the characterization that you got um, it was just fantastic because you had uh, you had characters. Um, you know, there were characters that hated uh, other kinds of characters. There was, you know, space racism. and uh, Yeah, Virgil will play a role later in the series. But at this time, all he seems to be is a soldier who Shion interacts with in the first few hours of the game who hates Reallians because Reallians are, well, they're, they're pretty much like replicants from Blade Runner. And, uh, yeah, he finds them to be second class at very at the very best and expendable where human beings are not. And then he Let's not forget the fact that he's let's not forget the fact that Virgil is mostly defined by actually having facial tissue kind of of skin condition brought on by eating Reallian's brains. Yes. I'd forgotten I had that forgotten that part. detail. But yes. Um uh, did they did they have a, they had a specific name for that, didn't they? Um yeah, I can't some, remember what something I can't remember. Strange condition. Yeah, that's one thing about the game is they do throw out some odd terms here and there. But yeah, what it was called in Japanese either. So. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The huge glossary of terms and stuff be good to dig into. But I think I, that was the, the point that really. What was that, Michael? I, I've got. Yeah, I've got the glossary loaded up now. I'm just trying to find some stuff. <laughs> Yes, feel free to jump in and interrupt us. I know you're harder to hear than we are, so feel free to jump in and interrupt us at any time if we're talking over you. Um, that's the one thing I clearly remember about the game is it started off kind of, you know, you've got your own sci-fi drama, you're on a ship, and next thing you know, aliens are attacking the ship. And as uh, Shion is trying to escape and get to the escape pod, um, Virgil, this, you know, cocky, arrogant, guy who hates realians and all of that even though he was just a basic soldier he didn't really have anything other than hating realians um, you see him come to try to rescue Xion, you know as his soldier duty and you know you just see him get mowed down completely you know he does fight with her for a little while Xion, cosmos and virgil are fighting for a little while until he gets killed mm-hmm is, is there and, any difference in how he dies between the PS2 and the DS versions of Curiosity? How does he die? Uh, tell us about the DS version. What happens there? We can well, maybe he, tell you there because the, I didn't play in, both. In the DS version, he's trying to hold off a Gnosis to save Shion, and Cosmos mm-hmm. decides she needs to sh- save Shion's life, and so she blasts the Gnosis into many little pieces, but Virgil just happens to be standing in the way at the time. He's trying to block them and gets... And so he ends up with about 50 bullet holes in his back. Yes. Yes, okay, same way? Okay. Got the same experience. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. You um, You gotta love Cosmos' ability to just manifest weapons from wherever they're stored in the ether, and then apparently she she usually just drops them in the cutscenes instead of tossing them back into the ether. 
Yeah, like I really like that giant. kind of aspect of Xenosaga technology. The fact they have all these kind of different kind of cool recurring technologies, like that, but just warp in te- weapons and such from wherever they want, including their giant robots. And they use that to all kinds of justify game mechanics and just provide kind of interesting, cool things. Yeah, and I guess like I was saying too is I really just love the whole characterization and the fact that they were giving you characters and they weren't afraid to, you know, polish them off and say, oh. Okay, well, you've just made a big sacrifice there. You're gone, and it wasn't something where you know it was just this happy-go-lucky story. You know, your whole ship was being attacked by Gnosis, the alien and, creatures. And most of the people on the ship die. Like, yeah, only two survivors or so, plus Cosmos. <laughs> and that seemed to be par for the course because all of the the Gnosis kept being. Uh, you know, a giant problem in the world, and that was one of the big things that this, um, the government or whoever it is at the time was having to deal with were all the Gnosis invasions and all of the deaths that were happening because of those. And, you know, I guess the overall arc of the story seems to go so long into all three stories. Um, yeah, we stick with Xion and Cosmos for a while. And then we shift with no warning to Ziggy, who we haven't met before, but he's being assigned the mission to go get back who we haven't met yet, Momo. And that will bring us into our very first meeting with Margulis, who will dog our path throughout the series. And, and that was, and, that was and another character. That, go ahead, Michael. I was going to say, and oddly enough, that entire section with Ziggy is optional in the DS version. Really? Yes. Um, you... See, Cosmos, Shion, and um, Alan arrive on the little tugboat ship, and they meet Ziggy for the first time, and then Ziggy will tell you the entire story in a flashback if you want. Huh. You can just skip it. But it's not, now, a, playable, I think that was... it's not a playable section. It is a read-only section. Read-only. See, that was one of the first parts I really enjoyed, and I think it was more of the story aspect because you had Ziggy, who's this – Mysterious, half-human, half-robotic person. Yeah, and, yeah, and you you don't really know all of the details surrounding him and all of the the history of what's happened to him at the time did to get him to get where he is. History mentioned? Did he have any real history mentioned for most of the first two games? Well, he got yeah. a couple of flashbacks that tell you he was uh, he committed suicide and was brought back against his will as a cyborg. I think it was. And there was something that Momo said about his name that reminded him maybe of his son naming a dog a hundred years ago, something like that. Yeah, because his code name was like Ziggurat 8. That was his actual. That to his real name. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he ended up going, and, you know, he would, I think, I can't remember if he himself or if it was Momo that started calling him Ziggy. Momo did. But Momo started Momo. calling him Ziggy. Yeah. Okay. Okay, Nathan, you had something to say. Yeah, I just I just think Ziggurat really was one of my favorite characters in the whole Xenos and Naga. Just a fun, interesting guy who just, it's kind of interesting because he starts this whole thing like he wants as his reward for saving Momo to be, oh, replace my brain with synthetic parts. He wants to stop being human. He kind of he's a person who committed suicide in the beginning, he's kind of still he's spent like over a hundred years trying to die as a kind of soldier taking on suicide missions. And he still continues to live as a cyborg. And kind of that interesting difference between a guy who's both likable and everyone loves him. But at the same time he wants to basically wants to die. And that's one of those interesting conflicts since he changes sort of the series. 
Okay, I think you're is going totally ro- some really weird sound there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he went totally robotic. Are you back, Nathan? Yeah, I'm back. Sorry. <laughs> Where did okay. I go robotic? Sorry. You just you started turning into Ziggy there for just a little bit, I think. <laughs> okay, do you want to repeat any of that? Or? Yes, yes. Uh, just Please. what you were talking about, about his desire to become less human. Yeah, it's, it's, it's taking on suicide missions. Yeah, it's basically he to erase his own personality. Yeah, as I said, he wanted to, re- to basically he wanted his reward for his mission to be replace his own brain with synthetic parts. He wanted to cease being human. He kind of want it's like he basically committed suicide over a hundred years prior and then spent a hundred years fighting suicide missions as a cyborg, trying to get himself killed but failing. And yet, even though the fact that everyone in the game likes him, he's one of the most likable characters, and everyone looks up to him and respects to him, he still kind of is on that path. And the conflict and change, he, kind of the conflict within him and how he keeps changing throughout, it's kind of one of the things I really liked about the series. I agree with you 100%. I thought Ziggy was one of my favorite characters as well, as far as the, uh, uh, the main cast of good guys. He just seemed to have that... Um, he didn't have the the same attitude that a lot of Japanese RPG characters have of being sulky and down and all of that. He still well, has personality. Yeah. He was quiet and you, you kind of got to understand why. And it wasn't just, Oh, I don't, I don't like the way I had to grow up or anything like that. You know, he had some serious issues that he was dealing with. And yeah. One of the flashbacks in episode one deals with uh, a quick look at his son who would very, very soon be dead. And also his wife, who would soon be dead. And that's mm-hmm. the kind of thing that does mess up people. Yeah. Just a wee bit. And he he does eventually show some emotion, but not in episode one, so we got to table that. <clears throat> yeah. Um, oh, and yeah, then we shift whole... over to Junior. After I was going to touch on Junior. Uh, before okay. we even get to Junior, I was going to touch on, you know, the other part that I really enjoyed about that was when you first meet Margulis. And he was another one of those. I tried to win for almost an hour before I finally said, you know what? I'm tired of this. I'm giving up. And lo and behold, I was allowed to lose because unless you grind idiotically long, uh, Margulis is really, really hard at that point in the game. And I absolutely, I, I think Margulis, as far as all of the characters, while Ziggy's my favorite protagonist, Margulis is probably one of my favorite antagonists in the game, um, even more so than some of the main villains that you run into, just because he's not really all bad. But He's, he's driven by know. faith. Yeah, he's just got... Um, there's more to him. He seems slightly deeper than, uh, than all the rest. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll let you go, and we're going to run out of time talking about this if we don't keep talking, so... I don't want to I guess we have to move too on much. Because Margulis does show up in the next game, so we can bring him up again. Yes, indeed. Junior. <laughs> what um, to say about Junior? The guy who just never a, grows a up. Of, a lot of Junior stories focus of the second game, so we can wait a little bit on that one too, I guess. He kind of actually steals the show in all three games, even though none of them are explicitly about them. Each one spends a ridiculous amount of time focusing on him and his backstory in various ways. Kind of because the whole game's so obsessed with the flashbacks to second Milsha, the first Milsha conflict, and the Milshan conflict. And so J- Junior's one of those guys kind of central to that. And in the PS2 game, 
you do get introduced to Junior like you were to Ziggy and Momo. You suddenly meet this new character and you suddenly are allowed to play as him without any real establishing shots. Hey, who is this? Why am I suddenly playing as this guy? While he's uh, exploring that ship in search of, I don't even remember what he was searching for, but suddenly you have somebody new exploring the place. Really? I think Junior was my least favorite character in the entire series, just because I think they did focus on him way more than I cared to pay attention to, and I just thought he got too much screen time and too much, I don't know, I just was not a big Junior fan. And again, he, the way he was introduced in the DS version was a little different, because the way I remember it in the DS version... We were um, everybody was facing down this huge swarm of gnosis closing in on the ship, and suddenly there's a like a ten second cutscene where a big spaceship comes out of nowhere and just blasts everything in sight, and that's how yeah. I get introduced to, to him. That's how you have the party breed first meets him as just the, how the characters actually first meet him in the PS2 version. But you've already met him through that ex- ship exploration bit. Yep. Except that didn't happen on the DS version. So. Ah. Trimming had to happen. So anyway, could somebody mention something about the side material on Xenosaga Episode 1? Because I'm pretty sure I got zero of that in my version. No Xenocard? Nope, no Xenocards, no side quests, nothing. Well, I did some hunting, and I unlocked the Erdekaiser from the Professor, and I used that at the end of the game to blow through the last few bosses because I was cheap that way. Yeah, Erdekaiser is ridiculously powerful. Yep. No, Eric. Oh man! Hey, they made the DS version so easy; you never needed it. That's one yeah. thing the the original was not was just you know you couldn't just walk your way through it casually. You had to actually take some time and do some extra stuff, or I wouldn't necessarily say grind, but you had to really be prepared to go through this game without a breeze. Mainly because the random encounters were the rough part. They, there well, was a lot of them, and they were not super easy. Yeah, well, there's a few things you can do to make the game really easy. Like, basically, you need to get Momo's first transformation costume in the early on, and then steal a certain item from the boss of that dungeon. And with that, you, the game just breaks in half. It just mm. breaks the game, the whole game, in half. If just give that item to like it's a good character like Cosmos or Junior, and you can just flatten every enemy group very, very quickly. I guess that'd be a good time to kind of transition into the battle system. What did you all yes. think about the battle system? Apparently, I I did not understand how to boost until the second game. So I found this incredibly hard for a while because I just saw the enemies boosting all the time and never figured out why my boost meter, which seemed to be the same thing to me as the critical meter whenever that came up, did not do the job. And anybody remember that early boss in uh, the Elsa, which reads that that meter and will, if it gets critical, you might as well just reset because it will then use a group attack that criticals every time and will completely shred you. At least that happened in the Yeah, that's the thing. It's like the entire Xenosaka one is entirely around the boost system where you just use boost to suddenly a character jumps to the turn order. Or just whenever you want. It's a great system that lets you kind of control the game's kind of messy turn order and, and put it, move it to your favors. It's really one of the central things is you talk about. So, yeah, if you don't know that one, it's kind of a hard game. Yeah, Except wasn't that a, for the wasn't end. Wasn't that a central have... part of your review, though? My... 
Yeah, um, what, how, how the, the turn order seemed really, really random to me because I didn't. I don't remember there being any uh, explanation about the boost system in episode one. It, then episode two did explain yeah. it, and suddenly I went, ah. That's one reason I can't really fault. I can't fault Mike too much for not figuring that out because the uh, the whole battle system is not the most intuitive in the world just without, you know, actually reading about it. You can't just pick it up and say, oh, well, this is this, this is attack, this is defend, so on and so forth. I would also like to say that the battles do not move quickly in this game. You need to sit there and wait for a few times because animations are kind of slow to progress. At least that seemed to be. Yeah, the game is a little bit slow on the basic combat flow. Yeah. Very true. Oh, but... and that the boss that hits you uh, after you've been rescuing the dozen or so people in the town that's been attacked by Gnosis, the, bo- the double boss that hits you destroyed me twice before I was finally able to kill it. Did anybody else find that, thi- that thing difficult? I can't remember that one, actually. Okay, do you remember certain DS version? You're probably lucky. (laughs) Yeah. I guess without getting into too much minutiae about the details on that, um, I'll kind of touch base before we jump to the next game of the key thing that I absolutely loved about Xenosaga Episode 1 is the soundtrack. I'm a huge Mm -hmm. Yasunori Masuda fan, and I think this soundtrack while Mike will agree, is not the best used in-game. For some of the cutscenes and just listening to it outside of the game, it is my favorite Mitsuda soundtrack of any. I love Xenogears, you know, Chrono Trigger, Chrono Cross. Those are great and all, but I love, with a passion, Episode One soundtrack. Except half the game you go through the... Except half the game, you go through the game in dead silence and weird, bad environmental noise. So it's like I honestly just say the game has horrible music for that reason. There's no, you don't listen hear it ever, and there's only one yep. battle theme other than the final boss theme. So it's like, and my favorite themes in every video game RPG is are just boss themes, and there's none in this game. So I really don't like <laughs> music much myself. Yes, I would like to speak to. There are two dungeons with music. One of them is the second to the last when you're chasing down Albedo, and we'll we'll probably talk about him a lot in episode two. And that's only the song of Nephilim, which gets kind of boring after a while. So it's left to the final dungeon to have the only to be the only place where music constantly plays. It's a pretty, it's not a great theme, but it's decent. Well, maybe I need to hear it outside of the game because at the time I just thought, finally, I get to hear something. <laughs> So I'll, I'll agree be. with you all 100% that you know it is horribly used in-game, but the out-of-game soundtrack listening to, I love to death. And you know, from the Gnosis scene at the very beginning where you know, they are trying to escape, and you know, the whole scene, the whole cutscene part where you know, they're, you know, Virgil gets shot down, all of that stuff, absolutely love it. So. Yeah, just me. I'll have to listen to the soundtrack on its own because the game itself doesn't give me much to judge the music on. Right. And that's it's a, it's a real shame. That's one of the biggest shames of that is the fact that it doesn't give you the opportunity to really dig in. Oh, and while I'm thinking about episode one, there are a couple of moments in the cutscenes that 
drew my notice. One of them is when Cosmos is floating through space and finds the Elsa. And in order to gain entrance to the Elsa, she punches the view screen of it and cracks what is either, I don't know, transparent aluminum. Let's, let's throw that in. It's probably transparent <laughs> yeah, it aluminum. The window. <laughs> yeah, she cracks the window. So. Yeah, I just wonder, can you do that on a spaceship and be secure? She's also moving her <laughs> lips while she talks to the people inside, which seems kind of pointless, but maybe well, that's, just... uh, that's what robots do. And, and then and, the and very... explosions in space go boom. Yeah, who says mm-hmm. that has to make sense? Yeah. Yes, right. I noticed some of those too. You gotta love fire that can still keep going in a vacuum. <laughs> but speaking of robots, I know that's one thing that uh, Nathan would gladly love to talk about the uh, the gear I'll, I'll just say one more thing to, and then we can move on to the robots even though i think they're better used in the second two games <laughs> uh, at the very end when cosmos is uh blocking their exit in order for them to get out of the gigantic self-destructing death weapon and Shion manages to hold her by one arm and drag her back onto the ship that means Shion is really strong because cosmos cannot be a lightweight yeah, Shion's pretty darn strong. They say the in game they describe that her kick is capable of perfectly just smashing a person's jaw and such. She's really uh, dedicated to I, karate and judo and stuff. Yeah, her kick character like an design. Her character design doesn't really convey that in this game, but we can get into the character designs later. Robots. Her her character design is great in that game. Horrible in the next two. Go ahead. Which is. Which is Robot. probably why they did not use the episode two character design at <laughs> all in the in, in the DS version. Thank That's God. good. How is the music yeah. in the DS version? It's present. Present. <laughs> okay. Enough said. Yes, they actually play it for most of the time. Yes. That's a step up. Good. Yeah. All right. Anyway, there, there are occasional points of dramatic silence, but it's actually useful there. Good. So what's good about the robots? Okay, well, I actually really liked the eggs mecha from the first Xenosaga yeah, game. Because they're the most kind of like the gears from the original Xeno Gears. In fact, that they actually fight in the same battle system as the characters, unlike the ESs and the later games. Also, they're nice and small, kind of nice, small, cool robots that you can use at any time. I mean, for most boss battles, you just want to switch over to your robots and fight with them. You don't have to, but you can, and it's nice. Of course, in this one, only Shion, Chaos, and Junior can use them. And Momo. She can? I don't remember. Yeah. Oh, okay. I, I... Only Ziggy and Cosmos can. Okay. You kind of need to get more robots if you want all four characters to be using robots. You only start with, like, three. You need to get three more, or more, even more. I can't remember the exact number. Of course, getting the strongest eggs in the game, the AG05, is a horrible, horrible money grind. But it's worth it. Kind of, but wasn't it about five hundred thousand when the most you get from a fight is about three four thousand? Oh, you don't get three four thousand from normal fighting. It's okay. much harder than that. Yeah. I think, oh, oh, right. This is the first game. You barely get any money from fights. Yep. Uh, it's made up of the fact that you basically need to either grind through the casino or use Momo's dark scepter or hidden move to turn all the gnosis into jewels to sell off. I used a mix of both, and it took me forever. <laughs> but I finally got the giant robot. Of course, guess oh, what's and... one more thing that they cut out of the portable version? Oh. No robots. Well, you don't get the giant robots until you get to second Miltia. Yeah. 
Jorge. And, 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 then, it, and then it's yep, and then it's the really big, cool plot, important ones, and not the AGWSs. So. Yeah, the AGWS eggs are just. I mean, I really like them, but yeah, they really hurt because they never show up in the plot. They're not character specific, so you just they don't actually do anything within the story. This kind of story just ignores their, the fact that the players even have the characters even have these, which really sucks. Yeah. They could have used them so much better. Yeah, also, I mean, they, the fact they, is, they do show up a few times in my version, but they show up with NPCs using them and usually getting slaughtered really quickly. <laughs> yeah, I think the anime version of Zeus Saga uses them a lot more, but that's the anime version, which no one ever wants to talk about. Because um, nobody's seen it. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I haven't seen it, although I am mildly curious, since this this story does seem well-suited to anime form. Yeah, I've seen the first episode, and it's bad. Well, so. I've not seen the anime. I have seen the four-hour cinematic collection of Xenosaga Episode 1 cutscenes. Yeah, I've seen <laughs> that one, too. Um, oh. I think that egg... oh, go ahead. Sorry, this is one last thing I want to talk about eggs, is that... I really like the eggs in concept and execution various ways, but the big problem with them is that they don't let you equip enough weapons. It's like, there's five weapon slots, and you can never use more than two, even though there's concept art showing them use all five. So it's just really annoying. If you want to use one of the cool, powerful RL weapons, you, only, you can only equip that one weapon. So the whole system is just kind of utterly destroyed by that horrible limitation. And that's what I'll have to say. I was going to bring up the skill system of episode one while I'm remembering, just because it's good in principle, but in practice it just involves – because the skill points accrue to three different variables, and you have to switch between four different parts of the menu in order to pump up, say, your moves here or your get new spells over there or pump up your stats somewhere else. And it was really time-consuming for me and – kind of outweighed the customization aspect by how cumbersome it was. Indeed. I mean, it's like, they give you like three different points that are built up that you have to spend on three different things. Like, there's the points used entirely for transferring equipment skills into tournament skills. That's all those points do. And there's another set of skills which are used to learn magic, and then another set of points which is to build up your special skills. And it's just a convoluted mess. You mean they actually separated them out into three different um, point types? Yep. Not only that, but one of the point types is used for two different things. Okay, and well they, they didn't separate. they didn't bother with that at all with the DS version. They just had experience and then points. Yeah, it's more like that in the second two games, so yeah. right. uh, oh there was one aspect of the spell system that I liked, which was once a character has learned a spell, the character can transfer that spell to someone else and then that's a quick way for everybody to learn something. Yeah, that's I like that. Cool. Really? Yeah, I like that. Okay. Yeah, especially since a lot of people don't have access to healing abilities normally, but give them the spell and suddenly they do. Or you know, everyone has access to Cosmos' awesome attack spells, so you need to transfer them off her to give them to like a good spellcaster like Momo. <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking of transferring... Nope, never able to do that. Okay. Speaking of transferring on, it's time to transition and transfer on to the next game in the series... Xenosaga Episode 2... What, Genocides no. von Gutenbosse. Thank you, Mr. Miki. <laughs> I'll probably stay it's... pretty quiet on this version unless you want to hear how much I dislike it. Hey. Oh, we all dislike it. All... We all dislike it. All viewpoints okay, so are... I, I would... 
Well, I would like to hear why you dislike it then. All right, but let's uh, let's hold on. Let's hold because, on for the because as, as, okay. as far as I'm concerned, it was just the continuation of the game I was already playing at the same time, and I actually right. had to look through a walkthrough to be to determine where the two games were actually separated because I couldn't tell from playing. It really is right, arbitrary, right. the division between episode one and episode two. It's just suddenly episode one ends. It's like, that's a lame ending. Before we start this battle royale, <laughs> let's, okay. let's give it a proper introduction. <laughs> this, uh, this game was, uh, I believe it was developed by Monolith Soft and published by Namco. This is a single-player role-playing experience for your PlayStation 2. <laughs> I don't know if there's a DS version. Same as before. Yeah. yeah. And this was released February 15, 2005, rated T for either terrific or terrible, depending on which side of the table you're sitting on this evening. So let's start off with Mr. Nathan. What did you think? think of this game uh it has a lot of good ideas a few interesting things but it's really a tor- nosedive from the compared to Sonic episode one just a bad nosedive just in basic game pacing game system it's a lot more slow and sluggish it's like this gives you this complex system of going on the, all these quests for the good samaritan campaign but oh geez, that, like no, one no. point in the game where you can do all of those and just Nathan, i would like to tell you I not only shut down those bad valves in the sewer, I not only helped cats find homes all over the globe, the globes, <laughs> I not only caught a fish, I not you only... Did contest? Did you win the beauty contest? No, I did help that, that little girl plant her flower, and... And I, po- and I put the posters up all over town for the... Fashion pageant. Uh, the I can't even remember all of them because they were so boring. Especially that one that, where you have to keep recharging the battery in order to find the identity of the thief. Did you try that? I I think my mind's blanking on that one. It's so bad. <laughs> I think we're spending way too much time on that horrible aspect of the even. Well, it is the only way to properly convey the experience of the mundanity. And that's the whole point I'm trying to make. And, and again, you're making me very glad that this is another thing they left out of the port. Uh, you're very, very better off for that. Okay, I, I have to say the worst one of all, paying off the gigantic million-dollar oh. debt in a game where you don't get any money from battles whatsoever. Yes. yes, or that. Yeah. I thought about it. Apparently, I, you're I supposed have... to uh, you're supposed to farm a certain boss for a whole bunch of items that you can steal from it, and if you can't do it at that point, well, too bad. I, was say, I, yeah. never, um, I, I only remember ever getting money for defeating biological type enemies, but a lot of things just dropped random items I could sell later. Yeah, there's no yeah. money or shops whatsoever in Zeus like episode two. Not for the PS2 yeah, version. There, there is no character equipment anymore. Really? No, really? There wasn't much, there wasn't much character equipment in the DS version either, but okay. At least there was some. Yeah, the best you can do is equip certain abilities that you learn from your skill points. That's it. Yeah, I, mean, I don't really begrudge such systems. Uh, it kind of works. I mean, I, like certain Wild Arms games do it well, but it's just, I don't know kind of messy in a game where it's kind of expects you to raise money and for various other purposes, and especially a big change from Xenosaurus episode one. It's just kind of weird. 
Let me get one more negative out of the way. Remember how the ESs level separately from the characters? Yeah. Well, why? That's just annoying in this game. It is. That's what they wanted to do. They wanted to annoy you in this game. Before we get any further, I'll just go ahead and go on my tangent of the things I didn't like. And I'll say again, I don't remember much about this game, and I'm glad, because what I do remember was enough to just, you know, make me not want to remember much else about it. Went through the entire entirety of Episode 1. You know, while I didn't care a whole lot for the battle system in Episode 1, I really enjoyed the story, the character design. I loved the cutscenes, even the long ones. Uh, the music was great, and... Everything changed, and well, you know I'm okay. sure that somebody speaking like of, speaking of changes, the voice actors changed most yes. of them. Oh voice God! As well, and the changes were the horrible part. The battle system went from meh to annoying. It went from the voice actors, and that that part didn't even well, really I think, bother me. I think Ziggy and Junior stayed the same. They sounded the same to me, and Margulis was yeah. definitely the same guy. Yeah, Ziggy stayed the same mercifully. Um, some were Momo, pretty good. On the I think. Hand, oh my, her voice in episode two is so awful. Yeah, I, 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 I can tell like that one, but I can't remember. <laughs> Mystic powers. Give me a miracle! Yeah. Sorry, I, I'm not doing it badly enough. That's okay. <laughs> you did it bad enough. We're okay. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, the, uh, the, the music composed by somebody different. The music wasn't horrible, but I did, you know, at least you got to hear more of it, and it was more impressive. The new characters well, they, added... they introduced. Oh, yes, Jin. Jin, yeah, I, could, I didn't care about Jin in the least. I thought he was generic fodder throughout He's the whole kind of series a, and just a waste of space. Yeah, Jin's well, Jin kind of a pale his... shadow of the character he's based on. Which is, Jin's clearly an XP and kind of a fake version of, of Sitan Uzuki, the guy who shares mm -hmm. the last name with from Zeno Gears. Sitan yep. is an awesome character. Jin... It's like he's kind of cool, but only in the sense he's like I've learned a tiny fraction of the coolness of Sitanuzuki. So, so if, if Michael, if you want to know kind of where the real split was for us, at least I know you read the fact and kind of have an idea, but it seems like the point where they introduced Jin was where everything just kind of went off kilter and became a totally separate game. And I guess I hated, 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 hated the battle system. It was a, a slug just to do anything. Random battles were way too much. The battle system was just – yeah, maybe I'm stupid and just couldn't understand it. I'll, I'll admit that completely, but I didn't want to. I didn't care. It gave me no desire whatsoever to care or want to learn anymore, so – Everything about the game just fell apart. And then the story itself seemed to just be like a little extra tacked-on part that they could not fit into Episode 1 because they had too many cutscenes. It's like just a small fraction of an addition, almost like DLC, you know, back in the day. The equivalent of that is what I felt like because I didn't think it went anywhere. I mean, we got backstory and backstory and backstory, but it didn't 
progress anywhere. If anything, it took us backwards and then brought us right back to where we ended at the end of the first game. Uh, yeah, it's kind of my feeling too. It's like it's kind of my feeling for all of Xenosaga. It's that there's a lot of great characters, a few really cool dramatic moments, but ultimately the entire plot, uh, the entire plot is just kind of a weird holding pattern of constantly going to backstory and backstory and backstory, which just hits this a mess in episode three, which I'll get to, and it's just not that great. Though I will say I really like the opening to episode two. I think that's uh, it's just like the two had the best opening of the one with the kind of the best flashback of just the flashback to the uh, chaos's battle piloting in ES and second and well back in the first Milton conflict, which I really like that one. Yeah, understandable. And I guess one thing you know that is kind of easy to say is a lot of the developer, the development staff kind of got shifted around for episode two. So I am remembering that correctly, right? There were also some people that were kind of um, distance, like uh, Suryaga Saga, who did the script, was most of the elements that she did were, you know, not really there. Um, Tanaka was not really that hands-on for this episode. Um, there was a new team of writers and editors completely. And you could tell. I mean, it, it just really seemed disjointed, especially yeah, compared to the first. it did feel very different. Yep. I, I would yeah, I think... say one thing about the visuals I liked is that they seem brighter this time so that I'm not constantly wandering through dark environments where I can't really see what I'm supposed, where I'm supposed to go. If yeah, they hadn't changed the art style, I would totally agree that the visuals were a big improvement. Uh, yeah, let's well, – we'll get to that in a second. Nathan was saying something. I can't remember what I was about to say. Sorry. Oh. That's okay, really all I wanted to complain about. I'll just – I'll be quiet and butt in and let you all have that because I'd rather not even talk about this episode. But <laughs> let's bring up why, why does Shion change her outfit to look like a soccer mom? Really, that's what she looks like to me. She looks like – this looks like an outfit my aunt wears. <laughs> Capris, clogs, a funky jacket. Yeah, she she looks like a soccer mom to me. Oh, and she also lost her glasses. They fell off and got broken, and then uh, – yeah, that doesn't mean anything anymore. I I wear glasses, and I can tell you that if somebody knocked them off and broke them, I would not be happy. Well, she may not be necessarily all that data data off. Input. I wear glasses, and I, like, if I don't wear my glasses, I'm perfectly fine. So not everyone's quite the same in that. But yeah, my I, know, I just cool. always assumed that she was as nearsighted as I am, in which case she would not be able to hit anything without her glasses on. <laughs> well, apparently her character changed between the games. That's the explanation I'm sticking with. Because mm-hmm. she She's never took replaced. her glasses off in the first game. Oh, she never took him off in my game either. So. Interesting. Yeah, I, I was rather shocked to see the episode two character design after I finished the game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a night and day difference. And Cosmos does look different now, and not for the better. Yeah, it's a terrible design for Cosmos. Uh, Ziggy looks out. pretty much the same. Yeah. All right. What about the story? You better. We better jump into the story while we have time of what really happened in this game. Uh, I remember. Hey, everybody Let's remembers see. the death weapon that just consumes an entire planet when it is created, right? Mm-hmm. Old Milsha. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, Omega. Yep. 
Yeah, uh, Omega, one of the many kind of offhand references to Xenogears. That's one of the things about Xenosaga. Xeno, the original Xenogears, I already liked it because it always starts out all kinds of references to mecha anime and pop culture, and at the same time throws in kind of lots of deep, somewhat more sophisticated religious references. Xenosaga just loves referencing Xenogears. That's all it does. It doesn't have anything deeper than that. It's got plenty of religious references, too. Yeah, but they're kind of awkward and messy. Like, the term gnosis, as it actually means, and so it has nothing to do with the gnosis as they exist in Xenosaga. So. Meanwhile, Xenogears is actually built around the concept of Gnostic Christianity. It uses it quite well, so it's a bit messy. Not as good in comparison at all. Okay, so this plot, well, most of it involves around learning about Junior and how he was a URTV and was raised with the man who is now Guinan and the man who is now Albedo and how they were created to destroy Udu. And that's, yeah, I'll, yep, yeah Michael, that's about I'll, it. Yeah. Yeah. The less said about Udu, the better, honestly. And I'm trying to, let's see, what does the dictionary say here about Udu? Unus Mundus. Life operation, operation system. system. So it was supposed to be like a brainwave-based artificial intelligence of some sort. Except that was all a cover story, which for something which is totally far more complicated and messy than that, it's really bad. <laughs> but everything, re- everything regarding Junior's backstory and Dimitri, what's his face, was overly complicated and had like five or six ulterior motives. At least yep. that's what Dimitri figures in far more in the episode three. Yeah, yeah he, and he you... pops in quite a bit at the end of my game, too. Well, yeah, he's so, he's got the ability to uh, resurrect himself in another body. That's pretty handy. You were able to really kind of get more about Guinan and – or was it – is it Guinan? Is that how you pronounce it? Guinan Kukai? Yeah, Guinan. Uh, yep. And then you get to introduced to the – I guess, was it Citrine? And yeah, Citrine, yeah. All of the other they pronounced it citrine in the cutscenes, but whatever, it's, it's arguable. Yeah, I, I know in my game it was citron. So she just seemed That's to come it. out of nowhere, and you know the whole explanation for everything just seemed—I don't know—but yeah, I'll just cut on that because it's really sad that this game really kind of went off track from what it did. Um. And if I'm not careful, I'm going to just branch us right into episode three because that's <laughs> no, no, not yet. Well, let's see here. I, okay. I, just... Go ahead. Oh, it's just if we want to talk about something that doesn't branch directly into episode three, we can at least maybe talk about the Ormus, which is actually something which from the original Xenogears episode two concept of the whole migrant fleet of people and their own crazy religious organization, which just show up kind of out of nowhere as the villains in episode mm-hmm. two. Yes, and mm-hmm. as okay. The Patriarch of Ormus tells us it has been around for over 6,000 years, since the time of the Messiah's crucifixion. Yeah. I, I took notice of that, because yeah. apparently Ormus is around right now, people. You need to look out for these Ormus people, whatever they're doing. The Illuminati. <sighs> or, or maybe the, maybe the Stonecutters, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, we haven't even mentioned Wilhelm, have we? Uh, yeah, Wilhelm. He's the man of vagueness. He exists to be vague, <laughs> mysterious, and vaguely evil. That's all he does. Him and the te- him and him and his testaments. That uh... you're getting into three. I actually, although do they enjoy. do they do show up at the end, and that's when Ziggy first shows emotion when he recognizes a testament. 
Yeah, the yeah, black well, one, he first right? shows emotion in episode one when he sees a person turn into a gnosis, which kind of looks like a testament in a weird way that doesn't make sense across different episodes. Oh, I forgot. Didn't that. we see some of the? Didn't we see one of the testaments in episode one? Yeah, the yes, blue one shows up and see a few yeah. different testaments. In episode. That was the blue one, yeah. wasn't he? Yeah, yeah the blue, see one. blue Virgil testament. And I'll see Red Testament just wandering around in a few cutscenes, <laughs> like the cutscene showing back the backstory of when Cosmos first went berserk and killed Kevin. Yeah. Well, as long as we're talking the, about the episode red, two, the red one shows up with Margulies a few times in my version too. Yeah, the red one. Well, his explanation is interesting. I was yeah. going to say we haven't talked much about Albedo, and he dominates episode two. <laughs> yeah, we just ignored say, him. He dominates every yeah. scene that he appears in. <laughs> He's a, actually the kind of the real final boss of the first game too. So he's he's the final Albedo, boss. Yeah, he's the final boss of both episodes. In my yep. game, yeah. Well, technically, there's a final boss after him in the episode one material, but I think it's like a part component of his spaceship. Yeah, yeah you have to break the core in order to stop it from destroying a planet. Yeah, but he's the he's the one that everyone cares about, so he gets to be the real final boss. Yeah. And let's face it, yeah, if you're going to be a villain. It's better to be memorable, and he's memorable to me. He has a good voice. He's very psycho. Memorable. Yeah, very psycho. Regenerative powers on the level of bringing your own head back are fairly interesting. Bring, the, bring it immediately back after blowing yes. it off <laughs> with a disintegrator. Actually ripping it off and stepping on it. Oh, he never did yeah. that one. <laughs> yeah, in episode that? one, it's basically, they edited out the knife he used to decapitate with himself, so it kind of looks like he just tears it off with his bare hands and then steps on it to crush it in the, in the PS2 version. Wow. Now, i just like to say that although Xenosaga 2 is definitely flawed and everything we've said is valid, I found some fun with it because I did not hate the battle system. Maybe it's because I finally understood how boost worked in this time and actually enjoyed stocking things and then unleashing all my power in a gigantic combo. Yeah, I'll say good with that. And I also, I enjoyed most of the music, which I could hear in this game. That makes a difference. Yeah, Um, Yuki Kajiro is a great composer. I'm really glad they brought her on for some of the songs in episode two because she's my favorite composer, flat out. I can see why. I can't think of anything I disliked in the score. And yeah, it's mostly bouncy electronic stuff, but I like that, so... It worked for me. It worked very well. So, out of curiosity, what exactly did the battles look like? Um, just in way of organizing battlefield. Um, in this one, you can actually uh, just because um, yeah, the DS version had a like a six by five grid split in half between enemy and and allies. Yeah, there's sides. nothing really like that in episode and, two. Um, I mean, the characters all started out in a line right in the middle of their area, but you can move them around the around their area to make formations while attacking. Well, episode and one had kind of that, but yeah. it's it's episode one. There are six different positions you can put characters, but like you can put characters in the front row or back row. The back row is utterly useless. There's almost no point <laughs> to not have everyone in the front row. So you talk episode yeah. two doesn't have any formation system whatsoever. Yeah, well, except okay, how so you can sometimes so... put someone behind the enemies, or the enemies will pinch or attack you. Interesting. Yeah, the DS version, the the formation system was really important the way it worked because you could get like defense bonuses, ether bonuses, and um, I remember in the episode two material there was a boss called Infected Gamma. Did you guys run into that one? 
it, it was in no. Momo, it was in the it was in the weird Momo inside Momo's brain sequence. Oh, was it right after you fight a whole bunch of infected URTVs? It is like the nastiest of the infected URTVs. It, yes, it, I do remember that thing. It hops around, it poisons you when it attacks, it hit me for 60% of my hit points each time. But at the beginning of that level, I was taught this one specific formation that had, um, Shion had to be on the back row in the center spot, and the other two had to be up in the front corners. But when you were, guys were in that position, they would automatically regenerate 30% hit points every turn. Nice. Every turn that Powerful. they took. So if all three characters acted in a row, or if you used boost to keep them moving in, then you could regenerate hit points faster than the enemy could take you down. And that sounds it handy. It made yeah. several of the bosses really easy. And before that, um, with some of the really big bosses that didn't move around that much, there was another formation where you just lined everybody up in a straight line. And when you were in this formation, you couldn't use me- melee attacks with the Y button. But, um, so you could only use the shooting attacks, X button. But it would automatically give, or it would automatically let you use your death blow skills without having to wait a turn. Wow, that's a nice advantage. Yeah, yeah the, the death blows can be really hard to access at some points when you really need them. Yeah, it's like unless you're the using a broken item. Was it the same in your games where you had to have three AP in the action points in order to access a death blow, but they only gave you two AP per turn? Well, it's okay, actually, it's kind of more four and six in episode one. Episode two is a totally different system, I think. Yep. Okay. Yeah, there aren't really death blows. Instead, you... You can execute one attack unless you start stalking. You can stalk up to, I think it was either three or four charges, and then you can do a whole bunch of attacks in a row, and then you can boost to switch it to somebody else to just keep the combo going for a while. Yeah, those long combos were definitely one of the fun parts of the game. I'd also like to say two more things about this, and then I can be done. One is that Jin Uzuki has a stupid outfit. I know kimonos... Work in some places, but I would not wear one when I traveled into space. I'm sorry. <laughs> and the skill system is not great in this, but at least it's it doesn't require you to go into four separate screens in order to use all of your points. Indeed. Hmm. All right. So talking about big combos, let's wrap this up with the third hit of this three-game combo. Xeno Sega Episode 3, and there doesn't seem to be a German subtitle <laughs> on this one for me to mess up on. Oh, there is one. Oh. <laughs> Bless, say, say that again, Mr. Minky. Bless you. Okay, so. <laughs> this one is developed by Monolith Soft, published by Namco Bandai Games America. This is a single-player role-playing game experience for your PS2 home console entertainment system. It was released on August 29, 2006, rated T for Teen, and what everybody wants to know is, did they learn from number two? Now, Mr. Cunningham, yeah, much, fast. much better. I was going to say, the DS version alone shows that they learned from number two. <laughs> Very true. What, Mr. what were you going to ask, Mike? Uh Apparently there was supposed to be a game bridging this and episode two, and instead we get to hear about the events of uh, a Gnosis attack and Xion leaving Vector in text. Now, am yeah. I right here that, that that game was canceled? I wouldn't necessarily say canceled. 
I think in the whole development process, they realized, oh, crap, we wasted all that time doing episode two when we really should have maybe done something else and wrapped up episode two's events quicker, and now this is the last game we're going to be able to make. So instead of telling the entire story that we want to tell, we're going to cram in a few of the things that took place before it into, you know, the first couple hours or hour or whatever of the game to kind of get people back on the same track. Am I correct really, in that, Jonathan? Nathan? I'm really not certain. It seems that way. Some people on the RP Gamer forums disagree with me on that. But, mm-hmm. I, well, the thing is, though, that, that that kind of text backstory has a ton of stuff in it. Like, it basically it introduces whole characters and events and major plot devices that aren't even touched on in the first two games. And apparently behind the events of the first two games, it just kind of wraps them all up and kind of basically concludes the entire plot of the first two games in text backstory and then moves on to two totally new things for episode three. Right. I will say this much. Uh, episode three is by far my favorite of the series. Um, even if it is kind of, it seems like they had to rush quite a bit of it. Uh, the thing I enjoyed most about it is the fact that I thought the battle system went from being, like I said, meh in the first game to horrid in the second game to perfectly balanced, in my opinion, in the third game. I thought it was fantastic throughout. It was a very good battle system throughout. It also, it totally changed all the character development system into the kind of basically, now you've got basically two branches for every character, which two totally different builds for the characters, which even gives the game a bit more replay value and adds a lot of depth to the whole combat mechanics, which I found a lot of fun. I mean, they even balanced out the air to Kaiser moves so they actually kind of balanced useful moves you can use in normal gameplay rather than total I win buttons like they were in the first two games. Yeah, so I found that the Air to Kaiser moves, because, mostly because you have a ton more magic points in this game than you did in the first two. Uh, they're great for breaking enemies so that you can beat the crap out of them for a couple of rounds. But they won't win the battle for you single-handedly. Yep. Um, okay. Nitpicky question. Who remembers the name of uh, that lady from Skientia who talked to Xion a few times? Uh, no. Are we supposed to? No, I just wondered why this woman would be using Latin when it's uh, roughly 4,000 years in the future and Latin is already a dead language. That seemed interesting to me. I guess the same reason people use it today and it's a dead language, you know. <laughs> it sounds cool and scientific. Just like people use Aramaic in certain movies, right? There you go. Yep. What was... um. What did you all think about the story? I know the battle system, I kind of glossed over it, but I just thought, you know, even between the, you know, the eggs battles and the single character battles, or the, you know, the character battles, I thought it was well-balanced. But what did you all think about the story? Honestly, I hated Episode three story. Hated it with a terrible passion. I love the gameplay compared to the first mm-hmm. two, but the story is just a miserable end to a kind of deeply flawed uh, story of arc. Do you think it was more the fact that they didn't have the place to go that they wanted to at this point, and that one and two had, you know, with one and two already being done and having done what they did there, and not having another game to go beyond this? Do you feel like that's more of the reason that the that the story wasn't as quality? Honestly, I just think that Xenosaga has bad storytelling. I mean, it's like as I said, the first two games suffer heavily from 
all kinds of flashbacks, flashbacks, flashbacks. In episode three, the characters think they travel back in time and spend half the game reliving the past. It's just, if yes, they wanted to and, make a game about the Milchen conflict, set the games in the Milchen conflict. Yes, and what actually happened? We are traveling through Xion's subconscious, which is mm-hmm. so powerful that it can regenerate Mil- old Milsha of 15 years ago to the point where people she had no idea existed as a child are there interacting with you, and she can interact with her own self, which is being generated by her subconscious. Now that is not some o- stuff. Yeah, and, and not only can she interact with her own self, but the fact that she does interact with her own self causes the most yes, ginormous the plot there. twist of the entire series. Yeah, where it they is basically... because she can interact with herself that they are in the past. So, yes, it's all messed up. Yep. I, and, I also noticed after she unlocks uh, Abel's Ark that, what was it? 50% of the planets in the Galactic Federation have gone missing because of this thing. We- yeah, she basically, basically, like, the even ridiculous casualty figure starts into the game about how, like, everything is going nonsense, billions and billions and billions of people are dying off screen, etc., etc. The point where it starts just getting more funny rather than dramatic. <laughs> I agree. Um, now, there were good points, I thought. Uh, a lot of the stuff at the end, not everything, but a lot of the final character interactions were pretty good, I thought, and actually fairly emotional. Of course, then the end is kind of anticlimactic because it seems to set up a sequel that will most likely never happen. Kind of like Definitely the, not. Yeah, it's the awkward attempts to make a sequel, which is kind of both they're trying to awkwardly lead into Xenogears, even though they utterly destroy any attempts to lead into Xenogears and in some mm-hmm. weird way. <laughs> Now, did anybody else – was anybody else really, really bothered by the fact that they edited out blood out of this one, especially from a scene that the character is supposed to be catching blood and saying there's so much of it, so much of it, put it yeah, back, put it was, back, and there's none? Yeah, it's weird. You see this thing which is no blood at all, Xion freaking out. It actually, I knew it was being censored, but I was actually imagining right. far worse than it was because it was censored. <laughs> I was thinking really horrible things while they were censoring out, and I was mm-hmm. actually imagining too much, which looking at the actual unedited scene on YouTube. Yeah. yeah I just thought I, it was ridiculous, that the way they handled I, that, the localization. I really noticed it at the very end when Jin has just gotten a couple of swords in his chest, and he pulls them out and keeps fighting for a little while, and nope, he, his character model couldn't even be changed. He has no hole in his shirt, even. Those are swords. We ruining, are, are we ruining this totally for you, Michael? Did Have you played episode three? No, I haven't, and I would have to dig my PS2 out of storage in order to play it right now. Okay. Go ahead. Go ahead. I know, I know we do spoilers here. I just wanted to make sure we weren't totally ruining everything for you, but I guess if you're okay with it, we'll go ahead. <laughs> well, hey, while we're talking about crazy plot elements, Cosmos and Telos apparently are both the vessel for Mary Magdalene. How's that for you? Yeah, it's like, I really hate they start referencing the Da Vinci Code of all things. Anything <laughs> uh, deeper and more interesting. I, I was kind of wondering when, when and where Telos would show up, because I was waiting throughout my entire game, waiting for this character that I knew from Endless Frontier, and she just never showed up. 
Yeah, episode three only. Yeah. Yeah, and she shows up first as something that Dmitry Yuryev funded to compete with Vector's Cosmos, and of course, Telos is really, really good, and we stir up a whole plot point about Cosmos being thrown into the garbage because she's been so outclassed by Telos. And then Telos breaks her, which was referenced in Endless Frontier. I remember that. Mm-hmm. And then while we're in the past, because of Shion's subconscious, uh, she's able to talk to Kevin while he's still a, a young man and draw the the prototype knowledge for how Cosmos was created out of him and use that to fix Cosmos and even make her stronger now because the professor steal from his computer actually. Yeah. Yeah. That was how it went. And then, and then we learn, Oh, well, Telos is supposed to be the vessel for Mary Magdalene, but Mary Magdalene's mind is inside of Cosmos. So one of them has to go down in order to truly recreate Mary Magdalene for this era. Why? Um, That's a good question. I think the developers would like to know that as well. And why does Wilhelm want it? Because the universe is going to be destroyed if he doesn't do something, and I'm not exactly sure what he was planning to do. He has this weird plan of resetting time and creating an infinite time loop out of the universe. Or something. That's totally unexplained because Wilhelm has no real explanation or motivation, but he's the final villain anyways because they've been hinting at him so long. They just kind of throw something together for him that's pointless. You know, while I'm thinking about Wilhelm, did anybody else get a little Return of the Jedi vibe during that scene when he's shocking Shion and along comes Kevin as the testament to betray him? Yes. Okay. That's not <laughs> uh, oh, and yes, Kevin is one, that, yes. Kevin is the Red Testament. Yeah, they People reveal all. This out of around the... time of episode one, apparently, because if the Red Testament and Kevin have the same voice, which is kind of weird, because Red Testament sets in the motions of Kevin's so-called death. So the whole entire time in the past was just one big lie being told to Shion, essentially. <laughs> and that's the thing is they don't really do a good job of they they bring the testaments out and they're kind of these cool little sub villains but they don't really do a good job of you know really coming to the explanation of them and you know they were some of my favorite things you know you wanted to figure out who it was and what their part was and a lot of it was pretty transparent and you know you just needed it verified and then the whole telling of the process just didn't really go anywhere. Yeah. Still, at least we got an awesome boss fight Virgil Testament. Yes. Yeah, that was... Another reason Virgil's one of my favorites. <laughs> and Kevin wasn't that bad either when you finally do face him at the end. He morphed into that weird whatever it was. Yeah, the last, the black cloaked one was pretty bad though. Well, yeah, yeah, one thing Voyager. that bothers me... Voyager, yes. The ES fights have been reworked again, and I mostly like them, but particularly with bosses and ESs, it sometimes takes a long time to wear them down. Cause, yeah, we haven't talked about ESs in episode two, so might as well talk about them more now. It's like, oh, um, 
ESs are these giant robots, much bigger than the small scale eggs, and they're all uh, kind of the classic size of any kind of normal real robot like a Gundam, except they're all equipped with these vessels of anima, which are offhand refer reference to the anima relics from Xenogears and little else. There's no explanation, no real plot justification. They're just the vessels of anima that are apparently important. Yeah, and they're also apparently sentient somehow, because if they resonate with something, then the ESs won't operate. Yeah, and um, this is just kind of weird, because I always thought the 12 Zohar emulators are kind of disposed of references to the animal relics, but no, they turned out to not be, so I feel like, Zenosaga, make up your mind, and... Uh, yeah, but the ES combat's always been kind of dull. It's got a couple flashy attacks, but you just don't have any real options or anything of interest going on in those in that combat system, especially in Episode 2. Episode 3 makes it a bit better, but it's mostly either attack or activate am anima, then use a special move, then keep attacking. It, not a lot and going on. And keep healed, especially during bosses, because I learned during the final battle with Margulis in an ES, he has an incredibly powerful attack that destroyed two of my people, and then I actually beat it with only two people left. Yeah. Perhaps that end I should have been trying to block, but... Uh, nah. When, he, well, when his was... attack does 100,000 damage and your ES has 52,000 hit points, you're in trouble. Yeah, pretty much. I will say, though, that I do like a, two no different ES fights in particular that were did well, and they both have Omega in their name. Omega Metempsychosis, the big plot one, was just... A big fun reference to the original final boss of Xenogears, uh, which is just very blatant. But also, that's my favorite <laughs> battle music from the entire series. In the, it, I just love. That would that be the one where you're fighting Demetriuria, like, right? Yep. It's basically that's it. Yes, that that would be my favorite music from the game too. Yeah. Also, I liked the battle against the true battle against Omega Universalis, aka Omega Id, which is just like, basically refighting the main hero of Xenogears. Oh, it was quite a bit. Uh, just, well, his main hero's mech, because it's an autopiloted one. It's just a cool, really tough optional fight that I was fun. I skipped that mostly because I... I can't remember what optional thing I tried, and then it... Oh, I tried the, the, the Dark Professor's robot, and it destroyed me instantly, so I stopped doing any optional fights. <laughs> yeah, that one is really tough. Uh, and yes, we mentioned Dmitry Yuryev. I like his voice in this. I I like the voice of Sellers, the the maniacal mad scientist who I can't I can't think Sellers is a coincidence because he looks kind of like Doctor Strangelove. That might be a, an obscure reference to me. It's probably pretty deliberate. <laughs> Even though he doesn't talk like Doctor Strangelove, but he looks like him. Indeed. And. Yeah, Dmitry Yuryev's whole goal seems to be, well, acquire the power of God for myself in order to destroy Udu and just rule the universe, I guess. I'm not really sure what all his goal entailed other than getting the power of God. Yeah, just get the power of God, apparently. Which is, yeah, that's the weird thing. Like, Udu. Apparently, Udu is God, or something like that. Like, the first game, it seems like a reference, kind of a reference to Deus from Xenogears. Like, in the second game, it's just this weird energy morphing thing that corrupts things and turns them into monsters. In the third game, apparently, Udu is God. 
It makes no sense whatsoever. And it talks to Xion. And yes, didn't we know that if this happened to you, if someone you knew was constantly collapsing and needing to be rested for several hours, wouldn't you start to wonder, hmm, your constant statement that I'm fine doesn't seem to be applicable when you constantly fall over out of without your own will being in, in the bargain. Yeah. And yeah, how many times did Xion fall over out of out of Udu's interference? So I think it was about ten at least. Yeah, something like that. Just say that maybe her friends would start to wonder, Xion, I don't think we can trust your assurance that you're fine. We really need to get you to see some serious medical help. Yep. Uh, that'd kill all the drama, though. <laughs> <laughs> Why, yes, of course, everyone would always behave that way. Uh, I don't I don't want to drag things to out too long, but I do want to say that I think overall, with all three games, I think... Well, if, you want to talk about all... we got a wrap-up for that. Oh, oh <laughs> Don't, don't be jumping ahead now. You thought I wasn't paying attention, but I was here, sitting in the dark corner, waiting to pounce on any of y'all to try to get ahead now. So Fine. before we go to the three game okay. wrap up, is there anything else? Last call here. We got like two more minutes. Anything else you want to say about episode three? Okay, so in two minutes or less, explain to me why I should actually try and play this game. Fun battle system. Great combat system. Fun battle system. Okay. Made it in two seconds or less. <laughs> wow. Okay. Second question: Exactly how long does it take to play the um, each game? Uh, the first one took me, oh, geez, somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 hours. Oh, before I go on, did anybody else have a problem uh, with the game recording your game time? For me, don't recall. It was, for me, it was odd. Oh. It, it never showed my total game time, but it would always show the time it took to win individual battles on all three games. Weird. Don't recall. Okay. Yeah, okay. I mean, all I can me, tell you is, go ahead. As for me, the first game took well over like 90 to 100 hours because the time it took for me to get them enough money to buy the strongest eggs and just how much I got wrapped up in Xenocards. Uh, the other two started around like 40 to 50. The second I had to restart because I messed up the Good Samaritan campaign and didn't get all the moves I wanted to get. So that kind of added to game time. Episode 3 was the shortest thus. I mean, no things that made me want to restart or waste a huge amount of time. I have only I keep data of all the RPGs I've played since like 2006, and I played the other episode one and two before that. So the only one I have actual data on is episode three, and it took me um, 45 hours to get through. And I don't do a lot of side quests generally. I don't tend to do the extra stuff. So that was just the actual content of the game itself is around 45 hours. Okay, so I have my save game for Xenosaga 1 and 2 right up here in front of my eyes, and I have a save right before the final boss. Mm -hmm. Anyone want to guess the playtime on the clock here? 23 hours. Close. 25? 22 hours, one and a half minutes. Wow. See, I figured it was a <laughs> lot more compact. And, yeah, and from what I remember of the final boss battle, it not only takes me about between five and ten minutes to beat the final boss, and then maybe 
15 to 20 minutes reading through the epilogue section because there's a whole lot of text in this game. <laughs> I would have liked for that one to have been localized. I would have liked to have yeah. played that one again. I would have, you, too. You guys were describing the Xenosaga series as a movie with playable parts. Yeah, my version is a novel with playable parts. That works for me. You lots know. of reading, lots of reading. Lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of reading. It's good practice, but oh, I wish I understood. Actually, I think I do understand <laughs> about 20 more. I understand about 20 to 30 more symbols now than I did when I started this game. So, so Mr. Baker, would you say in the DS version that there is a lot of reading? <laughs> Sorry, Maybe. Could help. Sounds like it. Could help myself. Maybe just a little, just a little, yes. And, and Harry Potter books are long. What's your point? Yeah, right? Absolutely. <laughs> so let's bring this to the wrap-up. I'm going to give each one of you about uh, 60 seconds or so to tell me your overall impression of the series. Speak to the audience. Should they go out and grab these games? Should they only stick to a couple, or should they just avoid the whole thing? We're going to start off with Mr. Nathan. Okay, Zeno Saga, don't play it for the plot. Maybe play it for the dramatic cutscenes, but not the plot as a whole. Also, um, battle systems, meh. Cool mechs, indeed. Uh, also, Xenosaga Episode 1 has Xenocard, the single best collectible card game ever created. Enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. Mr. Baker, I know you've only played the DS version, but tell us your, your take on the DS version. Well, I, I did enjoy the story, and apparently the battle system was a much better, much better done in my version. Um, I would recommend my my game, except I don't think any of you guys would be able to read it. Nope. So, nope, nope. <laughs> Sadly, no. <laughs> yeah, this sounds like it requires real kanji comprehension, not the maybe 30 characters I can do. Oh, no, this is, re- yeah, definitely serious reading time. <laughs> Mr. Cunningham. All right. They need to take the music of Episode 1 and actually play it. The cutscenes, trim them down from Episode 1. They need to get rid of Episode 2 and combine Episode 3's battle system and remake the trilogy into one quick, concise game. And then I think it would be fantastic. But as is, Episode 1's too long and bloated for its own good. The battle system isn't fun enough to you know, to really suffer through. Episode 2 is best forgotten. And Episode 3, like we've all said, does have the best battle system. But the story overall really doesn't stand up as great storytelling. It is a whole lot of nonsense. And I love, you know, I love stuff that's nonsense and the kind of things that are just out there and, you know, don't make any sense whatsoever. Sometimes I really enjoy something like that. And I didn't mind it too much. I didn't take it too seriously. So overall, if if you haven't played any of these, go pick up episode three. You're not you're not really missing enough out of the others. You'll enjoy the game. It's fun to play. You won't understand it anyway. So go for it. <laughs> and as always, the last word belongs to Mr. Minky. Insane. Oh, but of course you can't change the world without a little insanity. Uh. Episode 1 has good points, but like everybody said, they're hard to find unless 
you're willing to be really, really patient. If you are, you can probably find enough to make this worthwhile. If you aren't, stay away. Never look at it again. Episode 2, I find better than most say, but I'm still not going to claim that it's an overlooked masterpiece that needs to be experienced by everyone, because it isn't. It has enough to make it worthwhile for me, but I sometimes have odd tastes, and apparently this is one of those times. And Episode 3 is unquestionably the best of them. And like Mr. Cunningham said, yes, the plot is absolutely bonkers from time to time, but frankly, I prefer a bonkers plot where I don't know what the hell's going to happen to something where, oh, there's a bad guy, and he's going to conquer the world. Let's go mm-hmm. beat him. So, agreed. Yes? Agreed. Yes, yeah, this is so agreed. agreed. You will constantly say, what? Huh? Why? How? But that's better than going, oh, I've seen this before. What's next? Oh, the... The guy, the main character, he doesn't understand women. Ha, 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 ha. Yep. So this is definitely not cookie-cutter stuff, and I appreciate it for that. Fair It's enough. nonsense, but enjoyable nonsense. There you go. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, our... I, I prefer over-ambition to under-ambition. How's that? <laughs> While our audience ponders your wise and sagacious words of our entire panel... We're going to take a moment and listen to some of that musical soundtrack that you won't hear by actually playing Xenosega number one. We'll be right back. <laughs> to wrap this show up with the last lap we're gonna take a grab into the mailbag here aka our boards and i've got three comments that i've taken off from our last show uh which was about the dragoon panzer something like that right mr minky panzer dragoon saga i think mr cunningham remembers that i do but not our i think i was here for that because A, they don't own Saturns, and B, they don't have a couple hundred bucks to spend on the English copy. <laughs> yeah, and, and um, let's see. So, uh, Kisaki Project wrote, I love Backtrack. Can't wait to listen to this. As you can tell, I like comics that make my head bigger. I finally got a Saturn again again last December. I plan on getting a PDS soon, but I don't want to listen to this show until after I play it. <laughs> this is one experience I don't want spoiled. <gasps> you don't want it spoiled? I'm, begin- I'm bidding <laughs> on that one right now, but don't intend to get it until May unless I can get it for a great price. LOL, great price is under $200. <laughs> Good luck with that one. Uh, XR2 wrote, one notable characteristic of this game that I don't think received enough attention is just how cohesive the world is. In most RPGs, there are so many things out of place that we hardly notice. Everything from enemies that make no sense or um, things like monster motorcycles, giant dragons and tiny caves or cities or other grand structures that just don't fit. Mm, what do you guys think about that? 
Yeah, I'd, I'd pretty much agree. Uh, this comes out of the other Panzer Dragoon games all forming a cohesive world. Their plots are connected, especially if you go to Orta, which references all the other games. But not many people have because that was a Japanese-developed game on the Xbox. Not a good combination. Uh-huh. And Wibblefish wrote, I love listening to every episode of Backtrack. Hold on. Now my head's so big I'm not going to be able to get out the door. I've wanted to play Panzer Dragoon Saga for years now but couldn't bring myself to stump up the cash. Perhaps one day soon. <laughs> well, Wibblefish, if, if you cough up that much cash, my friend, you're a better man than I am. Um, so, uh, he also wrote, I wanted to make a request if you would consider doing a future backtrack on the Wild Arms series. Uh, Mr. Miki, is that on our itinerary at some point in the distant future? I think I heard Nathan reference that, so we know he'll be eager, right? Yes, I love, Z- I mean, I love Wild Arms. Love Wild Arms. <laughs> hey, here's Wild Arms. <laughs> Sorry, hey. <laughs> the the only example I have is that I would at least like to sample a couple of them, and my playlist is pretty full, and I have yet to play any of them, but... It is on the list. Believe me, we we have not forgotten about it. Mm-mm. So um, let's see. Our next show will be uh, a little. Uh, let's see. This one's going to be called Vanadiel Awaits. Something about some some Final Fantasy game that thinks it's online or something. <laughs> you know, these MMOs are always stealing Square Enix's names and stuff. <laughs> it just cracks me up. Oh, anywho, I want to thank my entire panel. Mr. Baker, is there anything you would like to say to the audience before we sign off this evening? Goodbye. <laughs> Nathan, is there anything you want to share with the audience? Anything new going on you're doing on the website or anything like that you want to go ahead and spiel now is your time to shine? I'm just the news guy. <laughs> Read my news. <laughs> Mr. Cunningham, the almighty editor-in-chief, is there anything you want to say to our audience? Yes. Thank you for reading the site and for listening to our wonderful podcasts. And as I always thank uh, Phil and Mike for their wonderful work doing this, and I'd like to also thank the wonderful staff we have right now. I do believe that we have some of the best staff that we've had in my, I guess, five years or so of being at this site. So I just want to thank all of you all for all the work you do and uh, for everybody for reading our stuff and keep an eye out uh, for other things. Oh, and if you do happen to play a PlayStation 3 game called Trinity Souls of Zillow, make sure <laughs> that you have lots of caffeine or that you don't plan on driving anywhere after playing it because I actually fell asleep playing that game and still ended up beating a boss unconscious. So I, I was unconscious, not the boss. So just a quick note, you know, disclaimer, Surgeon General warning, something along those lines. But wait, that might actually be a great sleep aid. Yes, it was. Oh. Were, were you having difficulty sleeping lately? No, no, not at all. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, Mr. Mr. Miki, have you been reviewing anything lately that you want to mention out to the audience? I just reviewed Okami Den, well, just a week ago, but... I played through it fast enough that I was able to sync up my review with Omega, and we all know that Omega plays things pretty fast, so I was doing a good job there. And since I just finished Xenosaga 3, we can look forward to my comments on that in the very near future. <laughs> Yay. You can read all of Mike Miki's reviews on the Xenosaga series. <laughs> yes, Okami Den was my 200th review for the site. Oh, congratulations. 
Yes, indeed. Congratulations. That's about exactly. 20 times more times reviews than I've done. Um, <laughs> well, 10 times more than me. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. Um, <laughs> to, um, to our audience, we thank you for listening to RPG Backtrack. As always, you are the reason we do this. RPG Backtrack is a production of RPG Gamer, according to Mr. Cunningham. Your source for RPG news, impressions, reviews, articles, and home to the best gaming community on the net. Write your questions and comments on our boards or email jcservant at rpgamer.com and help shape our future shows. Don't forget to follow us at twitter.com slash rpgamer and become our biggest fans at facebook.com slash rpgamer. As always, listen to our previous podcasts as well as our awesome sister shows, RPG Cast and RPG Sanctum at rpgamer.com. Mr. Minky, put us to bed. In the future, bullets will not be outmoded. Email will still be used. Robots will move their lips while speaking in vacuum. The disappearance of hundreds of plants will not prompt much public attention. People's subconsciousnesses will be able to manifest entire worlds completely. Swords will remain effective against everything. Southern accents will survive 4,000 years from now. Giant robots will only be employed selectively instead of constantly in combat. This is the future according to Xenosaga. Oh, and something about God, but we don't need to get into that anymore. If I-